We thank you this morning for your presence in our lives. We thank you, Lord God, that by your Holy Spirit, you can break chains. You can, you can change things radically. And so we thank you for this moment as we come to your word, Lord God, we just pray that you would speak to us. We believe your word is living and active, and so we approach it reverently. We approach it expectantly. We say, Holy Spirit, speak. Change us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Praise God. God bless you. You may be seated. What a song. Come on. I told Chris he's got one week to work on chapter 17. <laughs> Praise God. God is good. Amen. It's good to be in the house of the Lord. It's good to see so many of you here in God's house. I want to encourage you, uh, before we turn to the word, uh, to be praying for our missions team. I got a text during the first service from my wife. They were uh, there with Kevin and Santa and getting ready to go to the guest house that they're staying at. So they traveled 17 hours on a plane, got there, stayed overnight, traveled another five hours by bus, and now that's another hour into the village. So it's quite a journey. Um, but please keep our missions team in prayer this week. There's seven from our team that are there working uh, in the little village of Buiti, uh, right outside of Tonga in Tanzania. And it's amazing when you think about it, about 10 years ago, there was absolutely no witness of the gospel in that community. But right now, they're going to do a VBS with about 100 children this week and uh, minister the love of God. And so God is at work. He's moving. And uh, trust you, keep them in your prayers uh, that God would use them this week as they encourage the, the teachers, the school that's there. Um, we're just excited about what God's doing. I also want to encourage you that our community groups are starting up next week, okay? Next week, they're starting up. If you were a part of our community groups last semester, we want to encourage you, you still got to go on and re-sign up, okay? We're starting with a, a fresh list in every group, but we have groups meeting Monday night. We have a men's group meeting uh, Wednesday night, Friday night. Uh, there's groups happening Saturday, all different times. You can go to our website, encourage you to sign up and get in a group. How many of you uh, could commit to uh, six meetings between now and Christmas? Getting together six times, come on. Between now and Christmas, not too much, right? You're, you're talking about probably 12 hours total, uh, but I guarantee you, as you get in a group and you discuss God's word, uh, that he will work in your life powerfully. There's something that happens when we come together as a people of God and we look at God's word together. We believe as a church that we grow in community, amen? And so just an encouragement, get online, you go right on our homepage, you can pick a group and sign up and get plugged in. But today you have a note sheet in front of you, okay? And I wanna encourage you to pull that out and, and we're gonna jump right into it. I think you know where we are, Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16. We talked last week about how uh, the apostle Paul went through a season where all he heard was no's from God. And if you ever struggled uh, finding the will of God for your life, this is an encouragement, right? Even the apostle Paul went through a season where all he heard was no after no after no, but we know that as he responded to those no's in his life, God ultimately brought him to where he'd have him to be. Last week we saw how the Holy Spirit divinely directed this missions team to uh, Philippi by first preventing them from going to other places. And so again, it wasn't until they were obedient to the no's from the Holy Spirit that they end up in Troas and Paul gets the vision of this man from Macedonia that says, come to Macedonia and help. And so they say, well, I guess that's where we're going. But it's so interesting to me that they had to travel hundreds of miles before they get a clear word from the Lord. And yet at the same time, they were traveling in the right direction all along. 
You, you know, sometimes we, we expect like a fireworks in the sky, writing in the sky, that God would direct us towards something, but as we're submitted to the Lord, understand he's directing you all along. He's bringing you to where he would have you to be. And so, again, Paul sees this vision in the night, and they say, well, I guess we're going to Philippi. And they get to Philippi, and there they meet these Jewish women who are worshiping by the river, and the Lord opens the heart of a woman by the name of Lydia to hear the gospel, and she responds. And I love how Scripture tells us the Lord opened her heart. Because this is a work that God needs to do in all who believe. Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me, what? He draws them. And, and so when we talk about evangelism, we talk about sharing our faith, understand the most important thing we can do is to ask God through prayer to open hearts. Because without an open heart, there can be no true conversion. And so Lydia is this great businesswoman. She is a seller of Fendi and Gucci. No, she's a seller of purple. She's a seller of, of these goods that, that really royalty bought. And, and, and these, she comes to faith, and so she begs these men, come and stay at my house. And it must have been quite a house. That's where we're going to pick it up here in verse 16 of chapter 16. It says, as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her, and it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them and the magistrates tore the garments off of them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer awoke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, do not harm yourself, for we're all here. And the jailer came, called for the lights, and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. But when it was day, the magistrate sent the police saying, let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? 
No. Let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens, so they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out from the prison and visited Lydia, and when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. May God bless the reading of his word today. So Paul and his team are in Philippi, and they come upon this girl here. We don't know her name. She's mentioned as a, a slave girl. But understand, she's actually doubly enslaved. She's enslaved to her owners. Apparently, she's a, a source of money for them as a fortune teller. But she's also enslaved to a demonic spirit. And, and it's likely that the spirit gave her some supernatural insight into the lives of others. Now, I believe today that a lot of what fortune tellers do is just a, a money-making scheme. It's a scam, all right? It reminds me of the psychic convention that was canceled for unforeseen circumstances, right? <laughs> a lot of it's a scam. But there are times when it's true. And when it's real, it has a supernatural force. There, there is no doubt that fortune telling was inspired by the demonic. There are those today that I believe are possessed with the same spirit of divination. Now, understand when we talk about the demonic or the demonic realm, demons are not gods, okay? They are created beings. And, and while they exist, they cannot read the mind and they cannot actually foretell the future. They do, however, understand human behavior, right? Have you ever read the screw tape letters, C.S. Lewis, right? They understand human behavior and they can attempt to move things towards a predicted conclusion. And so God has always warned his people from being involved in this type of behavior. Isaiah 18, 19, it says this, and when they say to you, when, when they come to you and say, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers. What's a necromancer? It's someone who consults the dead on behalf of the living. He said, when they tell you to go to them, these men who chirp and mutter, I love that, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? Two very interesting rhetorical questions there. Number one, should not a people inquire of their God? Now listen, you may never go to a, a palm reader or a fortune teller for a prediction about your future, but this is still a very good verse for us as Christians when we struggle in prayer, right? When we struggle sometimes to pray. Here's the question, should not a people inquire of their God? When you've got an issue, when you've got a, a question, where do you go first? Should not a people inquire of their God? And the obvious answer is yes. Understand, this is the birthright that you and I have as believers. It is the ability to, to approach God and talk to him. In fact, we're given an invitation over and over again to pray, to pray, to pray at all times, to pray without ceasing, and yet so many times we don't, right? So many times we'll say something like, well, I guess there's only one thing left to do now, and that's to pray. Like, what kind of priorities are those, right? Like I did everything else, I, I tried everything else, now I guess we'll throw up a Hail Mary and see what God can do, right? And, and it makes me think, what kind of stock do we put in prayer with a comment like that? It's all we can do now, hang on for dear life and hope God comes through, right? Should not a people inquire of their God? And the second question, should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? And the obvious answer is no. Because what are dead people going to tell you? And, and are you even communicating with the dead? No, in, in that situation, you're actually communicating with demonic spirits, and I encourage you, never open your life to that kind of thing. Now, it actually says here that she had a, a spirit of pythona. Now, that probably doesn't mean too much to us, and that's why it's not literally translated here, but pythona, or a python, is what? It's a snake, right? And, and the python is associated with the Greek god Apollo. In fact, not very far from this region, there was a shrine 
to Pythion Apollo. This may have been where it all began for this young woman. Verse 17, she followed Paul and us crying out, these men are servants of the most high God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. So this demon-possessed girl is acting as Paul's spokesperson. And, and she's giving a demonic testimony to the credentials of Paul and his message. And here's the thing, she doesn't do it just once, she's doing it for days, right? For days she's following around. Now, is what she's saying true? Yes. Understand it's the same with many false religions and cults. They'll say certain things that are right and true, but then when you get into it, you, the lies begin to come, right? Understand the enemy does not usually work with outright lies because he knows if he gives an outright lie, we'll spot the lie and we'll call it out. And so instead, he begins with some truth, and as you listen to that, he begins to, to twist the truth. You see that most clearly in the Mormon church. I remember visiting a, a Mormon temple in Utah with my father, the Mormon tabernacle. We were traveling through there. It was quite a, a spectacular building. We wanted to go take the tour of it. We're, we're on our way out to California. And uh, of course, they hear my, my father was a pastor, and so they begin with, the, well, you're a Christian just like us. And of course, if you knew my father, you know, he's not gonna let that stand, right? And so he begins to tell them all the ways, no, no, here's how your religion is actually different from Christianity. Here, here's how the things you believe are so contradictory in many senses to what the Bible says. Again, the starting point seems the same. They'll speak some truth about Christ, but then they take it in a completely different direction. Verse 18, it says, and this she kept doing for many days. And Paul, having become greatly annoyed, he turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her, and it came out that very hour. Paul gets greatly annoyed because even though what the girl is saying is true, he doesn't appreciate free advertising by a demon, right? Even though the recommendation is correct, he doesn't appreciate the source of the recommendation. He does not need demonic approval of his work, and neither do you and I, okay? When we work for the Lord, we don't need the applause of men, and we certainly do not need the applause of demons. But here's the other thing that Paul understood is that he did not want to be identified with a fortune teller. This is not what we're about, guys. This is not who we are. He could do without a demonic letter of reference, right? And so, like Jesus, he tells the demon to be quiet and he, he tells the demon to leave. Notice, he doesn't speak to the girl. He speaks to the demon possessing the girl. And he doesn't speak to the demon in his own authority, but he speaks in the authority of Jesus Christ. And scripture says it came out that very hour. It came out immediately. In other words, the words come from Paul's mouth with authority, and right away she's released from this demonic stronghold. This girl is set free. And you would think it's a cause for rejoicing, right? But look at verse 19. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the ruler. Understand the masters of this demon-possessed girl cared nothing for the girl herself. They were only interested in her because they were able to exploit her demon possession for money. And you may think, well, how sick and twisted is that? That somebody would exploit the enslavement of someone else for their own game. And as sick as that sounds, it is exactly what the world is doing with our young people today. As the people of God, hear me, we are called to bring a message of freedom, but right now the church is being kind of singled out as being intolerant. And as bad as that sounds, you know what? I am intolerant of seeing people held in captivity. 
I am intolerant of, of seeing people held captive and, and, and keeping my mouth shut because think about this. What is tolerance? You ever think about the definition of tolerance? It is to allow the existence or occurrence or practice of something that one does not necessarily like or agree with. It means to allow or permit or condone. Parents, especially those of you that just dedicated your babies to the Lord, and your child's five years old and they get a hold of a bag, of family-sized bag, party-sized bag of Doritos, and they begin munching away on that, are you gonna condone that? Are you gonna tolerate that? No, you're gonna probably be a little intolerant, right? Because you know it's not good if your four-year-old eats 24 ounces of Doritos. That's just not a good thing, right? There are certain behaviors that we say, I'm not gonna tolerate, why? Because I love my child and I care for them and I want the best for, your, for their life. And if you don't address bad behavior but instead tolerate it, we know that's not good parenting. And the real question is, are we going to allow or permit or condone our, our young people to be enslaved really right now to this insane sexual ideology that says you can choose any one of 10,000 genders? Or will we speak the truth and will we seek to see them set free? You, you see, the gospel itself is good news. Why? Because it leads to freedom. And so you would think that if we preach the gospel and people get set free, then the world is gonna rejoice over that freedom. But the truth is, so much of the world profits from the enslavement of individuals. Understand, the liquor companies don't wanna see the alcoholic get sober. They would much rather sell another, another bottle, right? Uh, they profit off the enslavement of that, that addiction. The tobacco companies don't wanna see people set free from nicotine addictions. They would much rather profit from selling you another pack a day, right? And understand this, listen to me. When we talk about the sexual confusion of our day, there are so many who profit off of that confusion and they do not want to see people set free. Uh, understand, there are many that care nothing about whether you find yourself or not. There is an agenda right now that is throwing our young people into confusion. And it's estimated that for every individual who transitions, or should I say attempts to transition, because reality is you can never really transition from one gender to another. But for every one person that, that goes that route, the pharmaceutical companies and the doctors that promote this, they stand to profit $1 million in the course of their lifetime. From everything from puberty blockers to double mastectomies and hysterectomies on young, healthy children. These are children you don't trust to get behind the wheel of a car because you don't trust their judgment to drive, right? But you're gonna trust them to make life-altering decisions about their bodies and you're gonna call that gender-affirming healthcare. Listen, here's the lie. The lie is this, that if we don't help these young people make a transition, they're gonna commit suicide. So, so we, we're gonna save their lives by mutilating their bodies. Can I just tell you honestly, do you know when the highest rate of suicide is amongst the transgender community? It's 10 years after transitioning. It's 10 years after transitioning. And so if gender-affirming healthcare has its way, we have no idea of the destruction that's coming 10 years from now. It's really scary to think about. And you say, Pastor, well, why are you talking about that? Listen, I don't think that we can just stay silent while we see people held captive. I don't think we can just stay silent as we see people walk towards a cliff. I'm thinking on the other side of it, man, that some of them are gonna come and say, well, you knew this all along and, and, and you never told me, you never opened your mouth. See, here's the statistics. These are statistics from Barna. They show that 77% of Christians self-censor on the issues regarding the LGBT community. 
because we don't want to be deplatformed or we don't want to be labeled as homophobic or transphobic. But honestly, the statistics also show that 80% of those who struggle with their sexual identity during puberty, they see that resolved at the end of puberty. But our world is taking advantage of this confusion, and rather than walking young people through the challenges, we've all been there, right? The challenges that come with puberty and developing and understanding your identity, rather than walking with them through those challenges, they, they want to see them enslaved because just like the slave owners in this story, there are many in this world that would love to profit off the enslavement of others. But I think that as the people of God, we ought to love people enough to tell them the truth. We ought to love people enough to seek their, their freedom, even if those who profit from their enslavement come after us. And I wonder, why didn't Paul say anything sooner? He probably knew what was gonna happen when he, when he called this demon out, right? He probably knew what was gonna go down. But young people, especially hear me, do not believe the lie that there are those who just care so much about you that they wanna help you to determine your sexual identity. Can I tell you today, there is one who truly loves you. And he's already determined your identity. He's already established that for you. And Man, he has a plan for your life. He has, a, he has a hope and a future for you. You don't need to struggle through your teenage years trying to figure out your sexual identity. That's been established. And you can walk in the plan and the purpose of God. Listen to me. You, 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 the only way that you will ever live in freedom is if you walk in the identity that's given to you by your creator. And so here in Acts 16, we see this girl set free, and we think, man, there should be rejoicing, but there's not. These men are angry because they really are prostituting this girl's spirituality, if you will. And so they seize Paul and Silas. Now, why are Paul and Silas singled out in the group? Well, it's likely their appearance was most obviously Jewish. Look at the accusation there in verse 20. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. So they say, these men are Jews. Now, Luke gets off the hook because he's a Gentile, and Timothy is only half Jewish, right? And so Paul and Silas are, are singled out, and really, this is not an attack against Christians. It's really an anti-Semitic attack that we see here, right? It's interesting that we see this attack on the Jewish community in Philippi because it's such a small community. But they begin to work up all these charges. They say, they advocate for customs that are not lawful for us. Understand, in the Roman Empire, there were two very different laws, okay? There was one law for Roman citizens, and there was another law for those who were not citizens. The Romans really guarded their, their civil rights, but they also saw non-citizens as having no civil rights. And, and so the non-citizens are subject to the whims of the multitude and the magistrates. And so in this moment, they assume, and they assume wrongly, that Paul and Silas are not Roman citizens. Why? Because they're offended that these Jewish men would walk into their city and talk about some strange religion and talk about a crucified savior. And so there is this great indignation that, that we as citizens would somehow be bothered by you Jews and your crazy religion. We need to teach you, this is what they're thinking, we need to teach you your proper place. And so look at what happens, verse 22. The crowd joined in attacking them. And the magistrates tore the garments off of them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. Now, according to Jewish law, there was a maximum number of blows 
that could be delivered when you're punishing a person. But for the Romans, there was no limit. We saw that, of course, when Jesus was beaten, right? We know he was beaten beyond recognition. And here in this passage, Paul and Silas are severely beaten. Paul will write later on in the book of Corinthians that he had stripes above measure, meaning he was hit so many times he couldn't even keep counts. And after they're beaten, their their feet are placed into the stocks in the inner part of the prison, and, and the purpose of the stocks was to just make you uncomfortable. I mean, it's already uncomfortable enough. You've been beaten. You're sitting on a, on a stone floor, but they're going to keep your feet spread apart in a way where you couldn't move, right? But in the midst of their pain, can I just tell you, God was not far from Paul and Silas. And some of you need to hear that today, that even in the midst of your pain, God is not far from you. It was a great theologian, Tertullian, who said, the legs feel nothing in the stocks when the heart is in heaven. The legs feel nothing in the stocks when the heart is in heaven. Look look at verse 25. It says about midnight. It was around midnight, the middle of the night, Paul and Silas are praying and they're singing hymns to God and the prisoners were what? They were listening to them. Get this, even though they were arrested, even though they were beaten for doing nothing wrong, even though they're imprisoned in maximum security with their feet in the stocks, Paul and Silas are filled with joy and they're singing praises to God makes you wonder, man, is there anything that you could do to these men to keep them from praising God, right? It seems like whatever we do, they just keep going. Because anybody can be happy when the circumstances are good, but real joy comes from the inside. Real joy comes from the inside, and it is a gift that is available to us as believers all the time. So here are these men who could have easily spent that moment cursing the men who just did this to them, but instead of cursing men for their situation, they turn and they bless God. Listen to me, when wrong is done to you, you have two choices, write these down, two choices. You can either use your energy to curse those who've harmed you, right? I'm gonna use all my energy, man, I can't believe they did this to me. Or you can lift your voice to bless the God who's still with you. You can either say, man, I can't believe they did this to me, it's horrible, or I can say, in the midst of what they've done to me, God, I thank you, you're still with me. I thank you, you haven't abandoned me. I thank you that you're present in my life. And the way you respond, can I just say, will make all the difference in your life. 1 Thessalonians 5.18 says, be thankful in all circumstances because this is God's will for you who belong to Christ Jesus. Now I want you to understand what this verse does not say. It doesn't say be thankful for all circumstances, right? Because there are certain circumstances in life that are are just painful, and it would be sadistic to thank God for the pain, right? If you came to me and said, Pastor, praise God, I just lost my job. I'd be like, come on, what are you talking about? My wife just left me, praise God. No, I'd be like, stop, that's crazy, okay? It doesn't say be thankful for all circumstances, but it does say be thankful in all circumstances. And what does it say? Because this is God's will for you who belong to Christ. If you belong to Christ, this is God's will for you that you would be thankful in whatever circumstances come your way. Why? Because we know that God uses all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And so while I may not be thankful for the circumstance, I can still be thankful in the circumstance. I ask some believers sometimes, well, how are you doing? And they'll say, well, pastor, I'm doing good under the circumstances. And my question is, what are you doing under the circumstances, right? We are called as the people of God to live above the circumstances, amen? We're we're to understand that thanksgiving in the midst of the difficult situation is what allows God to use that situation for his good. Because I want you to see something here. It says in our passage that the prisoners were listening to them. 
And think about it. What a strange sound this must have been coming from the prison cell. There, there wasn't too much history of rejoicing in that prison. I'm sure it was much more tears and weeping and anguish. But as Paul and Silas begin to worship, the prisoners are listening to their worship. And can I just say today, there are people who are listening to your life. There are people who are watching your life. There are those that are looking at your life and they see, man, I know he's a believer. I know she's got faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, but she walks through some of the same difficulties that, that I walk through. I see he or she go through the same hardships, but my prayer for my life, and it's still a prayer because I'm not there yet. My prayer for your life is that they see a different reaction in the midst of the hardship. Because if they simply see you react the same way they react, they're not gonna put too much stock in your God. They'll say, well, they deal with the same situations that I deal with, and they react the same way. What's the difference? But in a place that only knew weeping and tears, Paul and Silas begin to pray, and they begin to sing. And, and their worship literally changes the atmosphere of the prison. And so there's prayers and there's praise going up to God at midnight in the midst of a maximum security cell. I am certain those walls never heard that sound before. And I'm sure they never felt what was about to happen here. Verse 26, suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And at once, all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. So something miraculous takes place, right? The foundations of the prison are shaken. And there is power in our praise, hear me today, there is power in our praise to literally shake the foundations that hold people captive. There, there's power in our praise. When you are praising God, understand it's not just for you because in the story here, it's not just their chains, it's all of their chains came loose. But I have to ask the question, what is the purpose of this miracle? Why, why did this take place? If you say it's to set Paul and Silas free, you'd be wrong. Find another answer, okay? This miracle does not lead to their freedom, but it leads to the freedom of the one that's holding them captive. Check this out, verse 27. It says, the jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought, man, all the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself, we're all here. Get this, the, the jailer wakes up from his sleep, he sees the prison doors open, he thinks everyone has escaped, and for a Roman guard, if you let a prisoner escape, you would receive the punishment that that prisoner was gonna get. So it's likely there were some in that prison that were condemned to die. And so this soldier says, oh, I'm not gonna wait for them to do it to me, I'm just gonna take my own life. And so here are Paul and Silas, and they hear the sound of a sword being drawn out of its sheath, and if they had held on to bitterness in their hearts, for what was done to them, they would have said, great, let him kill himself, right? That is just perfect, right? They would have said, this is awesome. God has set us free, and our enemies are gonna take their own life. Their chains have fallen off, and there is a literal, literal open door before them. Now, remember when Peter was in prison, right, and the angel comes and visits him? Remember that story? We're going back a little ways. And the angel leads him out of the prison, and the whole time he thinks it's, it's a vision until he gets outside of the, the gates of the city, and he realizes, wow, I'm, I'm free, right? But in this situation, the doors are open, but God wants Paul and Silas to stay where they are. The doors are open, but God wants them to stay where they are for a kingdom purpose. Understand, every open door is not always the leading of God. When you talk about the will of God, every open door is not always the leading of God. Just because it's a good opportunity does not mean it's a God opportunity. 
And, and that's why I asked the question, why did this miracle take place? What was the, the purpose of the miracle? You see, if, if Paul and Silas thought this miracle was only for their freedom, they're out, right? And, and when you look at your own life and you see uh, God do miraculous, you, the miraculous things, you need to be able to discern why he's doing what he's doing. Because right here, the shaking of the prison was not to free Paul and Silas, but it was to free a Roman guard. Understand the shaking in your life, the, the miraculous that takes place in your life is not always for you. Sometimes it's a testimony to others. And so instead of running out the door, Paul and Silas say, don't harm yourself. We're all still here. You see, for Paul and Silas, the lives of others were more important to them than their own personal freedom and their own comfort. In not escaping, they show tremendous discernment because all the circumstances, right? Chains are off, doors are open. All the circumstances say escape, run for your life. But the love of God in them says for the sake of this soul, we're gonna stay. For the sake of this, this one Roman guard, we're gonna stay. Understand, they're not simply guided by their circumstances, it's love that compels them. Now, it's miraculous that the prison doors are open, the chains fall off, right? But I think it's even more miraculous that all the prisoners are still there, right? Because there's some hardened criminals, they didn't run for the hills. Certainly, God's doing something uh, miraculous in this moment. Look at verse 29. The jailer called for lights, and he rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas, and he then brought them out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Because Paul and Silas stayed, God could work another miracle. Let me say that again. Because Paul and Silas stayed, God could work another miracle. The jailer who was just about to commit suicide, just about to take his life, here's a, a man who's certainly at the end of himself, this hardened keeper of the prison, he falls down trembling, and I, I think it's as dramatic as it sounds, because this man is so affected by the love and the grace that's demonstrated by Paul and Silas. I think that an even greater impact than the earthquake was just the fact that here they were. He, he was likely the one that had beaten them just a few hours earlier. And so he falls down before Paul and Silas and he asks a question. And it's the most important question that anyone could ever ask. It's the most important question that you could ever ask. What must I do to be saved? What do I need to do to be made right with God? Sirs, what must I do to be saved? He is so impacted by Paul and Silas, by the love that they show to him, by their ability to take joy even in misery. Again, I'm sure he heard them singing before this moment. And he looks at their lives and he says, I want what you got. And church, this is how God wants our lives to be. This is how he wants our lives to be. Our, our faith in God should make others say, I, I wanna have what you have, right? But look at Paul's answer here because his statement is really the essence of the gospel, that salvation is by grace alone, received by faith alone. He says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That's the essence of the gospel. It's repentance and it's faith. Now, you could look at this and say, well, he hadn't repented yet, but I think his repentance was evident, right? He fell at the feet of those that he had just wronged. And Paul says, believe. Now, the Greek word here is the word pistis, which simply means to trust in, or rely on or cling to, and the command is to believe on the Lord Jesus. I love this because Paul doesn't give the jailer a lecture on theology. He doesn't, let me tell you all these spiritual terms that you need to now know, right? He doesn't say, here's the sacraments, or let me tell you how to join the church, right? He sees a man who's obviously repentant, and he points this obviously repentant man to faith in Jesus Christ. There was an old chaplain I heard of in the, the British Army, and 
Back in that time, the, the chaplains would actually go out on the battlefield with the army and they would minister in the midst of the battle. But this man by the name of Bishop John Taylor Smith, he had his chaplaincy. And when people wanted to join his chaplaincy, he would give them a test. And he would say, if, if you're with a man on the battlefield who's been injured and he has three minutes left to live, how would you tell him he could be saved and come to peace with God? And some of the candidates would get all theological. They try to impress him with all their knowledge. He would say, no, 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 no. If you can't share the gospel in three minutes, you're not fit to be a chaplain in my service. And I wonder how many of us could share the simple gospel in just three minutes. It's as simple as communicating that all have sinned, all have fallen short of the glory of God. Each of us have, have chosen to go our own way and not God's way and not his plan and not his purpose for our lives. And the penalty for going our own way instead of honoring our creator is death. But Jesus came and he went to the cross and he paid the penalty that you and I deserve. And so it's simply by faith in the finished work of the cross that you and I can be saved. That's the message of the gospel, plain and simple. And, and some read Paul's invitation here and they say, is that all Paul had to say? I mean, that's, that's too easy, right? He's sharing a too easy faith. It's, kinda, it's cheap grace. But the word of God says it's the grace of God, right, that leads us to repentance. It's an understanding of God's grace that leads us to be saved. And Paul says here, you and your whole household will be saved. Understand that Jaor's household was not saved simply because he was. It tells us that Paul came and he spoke the word of the Lord to all those who were in the house. Because each one of them was saved because they individually trusted the work of the Lord for themselves. Listen, you can't get by on your grandparents' faith, and you can't get by on your parents' faith. It's got to be your faith, right? You have to yourself believe and trust and rely on, cling to the work of the cross for you. Now look at verse 33. It says, and he took them the same hour of the night, and he washed their wounds and was baptized at once, he and all his family. And then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. So the jailer that had punished these men is now caring for Paul and Silas, and he puts food before them. I love this picture. Can you imagine it? It shows how repentant he was. It also shows the example that he saw in Paul and Silas, right, about what it means to love. Right away, he's serving. This guy's serving right away. And so the jailer and his family... They see no reason to delay getting baptized. They're baptized that very night. Now, who knows what hour this is, right? You gotta remember, this all started at midnight, right? It's probably three or four in the morning, right? It's early morning. This family has been baptized. This man is rejoicing, understanding in just a few short hours, he's taken from suicidal fear to incredible joy, right? In this short amount of time, because the Holy Spirit used the praise of Paul and Silas in the midst of their suffering. Can I just tell you today, God can use your prayer and praise in the midst of suffering to change someone's life forever. And God sometimes shakes the foundations, and it's not just to set us free, but it's to open the eyes of others to see what God is doing in and through us. But the question is, in the midst of the suffering, will you lift up your prayer? And will you lift up your prayer? Praise. And so check this out. Verse 35. It says, but when it was day, the magistrates sent the police saying, let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. So check this out. Paul and Silas leave the prison under the custody of this jailer. They go to the jailer's house because they want to minister to his family, right? They share a meal with him and his family. But where do they go after it's all done? 
They go back to prison. Apparently, they go back to prison, and they do that willingly because they want to spare this man's life. They're not thinking, well, he's saved, now we can go, because if he dies, he's good. (laughs) They want to spare this man's life, right? How do we know this to be true? Well, in the morning, the officers say, let him go. But that brings up another question. If Paul and Silas are going to be released the day after their beating and arrest and imprisonment, don't you think God knew that? So why did God send the earthquake? Again, we see the earthquake had nothing to do with freeing Paul and Silas from prison. It had everything to do with the salvation of this prison guard and his household that would become the core of the Philippian church. But look at how Paul responds to this news that comes to him while he's, he's back in prison, right? But Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly. He's saying they, they didn't do this in secret. They, they did this publicly. We're uncondemned. We are, are Roman citizens. They've thrown us into prison, and, and now they try to throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard what? That they're Roman citizens. Oh, no. Right? And so they came, and they apologized. And they took them out, and they asked them to leave the city. It is because Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they had, they had certain civil rights, and those rights were, were violated by these magistrates. And once the magistrates, these rulers, learned, man, they're Roman citizens. Oh, no, right? We're in trouble, right? Because it was a great offense to treat Roman citizens the way they treated Paul and Silas. Which brings up another good question. Why didn't Paul and Silas pull out their Roman citizenship card earlier, right? Well, maybe, maybe they didn't have a chance. Or, or maybe they said they were Roman citizens and nobody believed them, but more than likely, I think the Holy Spirit directed them not to reveal it until a certain time. And if, that, if that's the case, and I believe it was, then just think about how they laid down their own rights out of obedience to Christ. Because God had a purpose, and God had a plan for what they were about to walk through. And as difficult as it was, God had a purpose and God had a plan. And you need to understand when we talk about the will of God for our lives, our rights are not as important as obedience to the will of God. Let me say that again. Our rights are not as important as our obedience to the will of God. And there are going to be times, listen to me church, in in all of our lives, when we're following Jesus, that he's going to ask us to lay down our rights for the sake of another. It was for the sake of a Philippian jailer and his family. And so these magistrates, they, they do what a lot of politicians often do. They try to make their problem go away. We're going to sweep it under the rug. Nobody's going to notice, right? But Paul says, I don't think so. You're not going to get away with it that easy. And so these men come and they apologize. Now, why is this so important to Paul? I don't think it's a matter of getting back at them. I don't think he's just saying, I want to see you grovel at my feet. No, no. I, here, here's the reality. I think he's concerned for these new Christians in Philippi. Remember, they had been punished publicly. They had been sent to prison publicly. And so if the church begins in Philippi with this understanding that the men who brought this teaching to Philippi were beaten and imprisoned for doing wrong, and then we have no idea what happened to them, just think about what a negative mark that would leave on the church, right? And so a public apology, it's not for Paul. It's for the sake of the church. So look at how this chapter closes out, verse 40. So they went out to the prison, so they went out of the prison and visited Lydia, and when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. I love this, because they say, you know what, we're not gonna be hurried out of town. We're gonna stop by the church, we're gonna encourage the believers first. 
But just think for a moment as we close today about the lives that Paul and Silas touched while they were in Philippi. There was Lydia who was obviously brought up religious. There was a Roman guard who probably wasn't. There was a a young woman on the complete opposite side of the spectrum who was demon-possessed, likely involved in the occult at some point. And Lydia's heart is is changed in a moment because the Spirit softens her heart, opens her heart to the work of the Holy Spirit. The heart of this guard is changed by a miraculous miracle, and this young woman is set free from demonic oppression. But regardless of how God moved in their lives, I'm sure they all heard the gospel, and I'm sure they all believed. And so think about what an amazing church they leave behind in Philippi, right? Lydia, this successful businesswoman. Oh, I want you to meet the slave girl, right? And and come over here. Come meet the Roman jailer and his whole family. And here Luke goes back to using the word they, and we get the impression that he stays behind for a time in Philippi, at least for a little while, to care for this new congregation. It's amazing what God can do through our lives when we are submitted to him. Would you stand with me as we close today? Remember last week we talked about how God's no's are just as important as the go's. But I want you to understand something, church, as we close today. I want you to get this today. When you talk about the will of God for our lives, not every open door is an invitation to leave. Sometimes there's an open door and God would have you stay for the sake of someone else. And I think especially when we talk about the difficulties of life, so often when we're going through it, we're dealing with something with our, with our health or walking through a difficult circumstance. Our, our prayer is, God, would you get me out of this? How many of you prayed that before, right? God, this stinks. God, would you just get me out of this already, right? We're, we we want to be done with it. Sometimes our only prayer is, God, get me out of this. But I've learned through the years to begin to pray, God, what do you want me to get out of this? What are you teaching me? But I think there's another question here, and I would encourage you to pray differently as you begin to pray. Pray God would use this. Say, God, would you, whatever I'm walking through, would you use this situation? Would you use this situation not only in my life, but in the lives of others? And if that's your prayer, and that's your mindset as you walk through difficulties, I trust you will see opportunities like Paul and Silas did to minister the grace and love of Jesus Christ to someone that needs to hear it. And here's the thing. As difficult as this sounds, that someone, that someone might just be someone who's wronged you. But I guarantee you today that there are those that are looking at your life and they're listening, seeing what you're walking through. And they're saying, is is he any different? Is he responding any different? And it's my hope, it's, it's my prayer for my life. I hope it's your prayer as well that God would give you the grace and the mercy to walk through the difficult situations with prayer and praise on your lips and that your life might be a magnet that attracts others to Jesus Christ. With heads bowed around the room, before we close with the song, I want you to just do business with God. If that's your desire today, let him know. Say, God, would you use this situation? Would you use this difficulty that I'm walking through for your glory? Somehow, would you give me the grace and and the strength to walk through this in a different way? Lord, would you put your praise on on my lips? In the difficult situations, I I pray my response would be to to, to call upon you and to lift up your name and to give you glory. And I want to tell you, as you do that, lives are going to be changed around you. So let that be your prayer today.
Say, God, work in my life, in my situation. Allow me to respond as you would have me to respond.